Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 2, verses 13 through 18. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then, What was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Acrelius was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Power, corruption, uh, deception, genocide, refugees, exile. Uh, Those are not words that we tend to associate with a Christmas story. Uh, And yet, they are important elements to understanding the full context of Christmas. Uh, I think too often the Christmas story gets sanitized and sentimentalized. But brutality and depravity really do set the stage for the Christmas event. Uh, And Matthew refuses to allow us to miss the depths of significance in what it means for Emmanuel, God with us, to have actually come given this context. Now, if you've been with us, uh, we've been in a series in which we have been mining the depths of the fullness uh, that's found in the Advent season. And we have attempted to give this story its proper foundation so that uh, when we do celebrate the coming of Jesus, uh, that celebration is rooted and it is rich. And this week, we look at one of the more jarring elements of the Christmas story, uh, which is the exile of Jesus. Uh, So to understand why this exile is so significant, uh, let's consider the darkness of the exile, the lesson in the exile, and then the hope from the exile. Uh, So first, the darkness of the exile. Uh, I don't think I have to do much to show the ways in which this story is pretty dark. Uh, Essentially, the context is that the Magi, who we looked at last week, uh, went to Jerusalem looking for the king for whom the stars had aligned. Uh, While they were there, they spoke with Herod, the king in Jerusalem. And this seemed to make sense to them. If there was going to be a new king, why not go to the center of power and to the king? 
But uh, what they didn't realize is what they had started by going to him. Uh, See, up until that point, King Herod might have heard rumors of a coming king, but he did not know that something had actually happened. It was the Magi who informed him that the time had now come. Now, Herod, uh, though he was politically brilliant in some ways, uh, he was also a vicious tyrant. He was incredibly insecure about his role as king, especially since uh, the Jewish people were not particularly fond of him. And so when he hears of this king, he insists that the Magi let him know what uh, they found. And uh, the Magi, as the story tells us, uh, they were warned in a dream to not go back to Herod. And so they go home a different way. And when Herod realizes that he's been deceived by these wise men, he's furious, uh, and his reaction was to crush any possible rise of a future king. And so his solution was to send troops to Bethlehem and have them kill every male child under the age of two. Now, there are um, some skeptics who, when they look at this event, uh, they question whether or not this event, this genocide, actually happened. Um, And the reason why is because there are no external sources that reference such a genocide, Um, meaning, you know, there would have been notable ancient historians, um, historians like Josephus, who would have uh, recorded such an event if that event had actually happened, they would say. Uh, And so there's a couple important facts just to point out about this situation uh, that gives some context. Uh, The first thing is that it's important to note that historians uh, note that Bethlehem would have been a relatively small village. Uh, Scholars estimate that there would have, um, there really would not have been that many children under the age of two. They estimate somewhere between seven to 20 um, children uh, that would fit that category. And now, while that number is certainly significant, uh, what is also important, the second thing that's important to know is the context of Herod's brutality. Uh, One might not actually think much about this heinous act, uh, given his broader brutality. Uh, What I mean by that is just, for an example, Herod was so violent uh, that he had two wives, three sons, and a mother-in-law murdered uh, for fear that they might be part of a conspiracy against him. Uh, Additionally, to give a little glimpse of his insanity, uh, when he was on his deathbed, uh, as a final act of vengeance against his dissenters, he demanded that a group of leading Jews be executed when he died. The rationale being he knew that no one would mourn his death So if he had others killed at the same time, at least there would be some mourning that would take place when he died. Uh, He was a violently insane tyrant. Uh, It's also worth noting that uh, when he did die, he was overruled uh, and that group was not actually killed. Um, But all that just to say is no. The death of about a dozen children in Bethlehem would not have been all that significant in the grand scheme of his madness when leaders uh, have scandals uh, and they have scandals after scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. uh, You tend to lose track of them and maybe even forget about some of them. Uh, I'm so glad we don't have anything like that to worry about in modern politics. Uh, But this, of course, is the context of Jesus's birth. 
and as a result, an angel comes to Joseph and tells him to leave immediately and to head to Egypt to escape this violence. And so from the beginning of his life, Jesus becomes a refugee who is fleeing violence against himself and his family. Now, this is a, a little bit of a side note, but may we never uh, forget the incredibly subversive way in which Jesus comes. Jesus is a king who was not born uh, from power or of influence or of riches. He did not live a life of safety and privilege. Instead, he was born in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire to parents no one would have thought much of in a complicated situation, uh, in an unplanned pregnancy, uh, and for good measure. He becomes a refugee, fleeing persecution and violence. Now, I cannot imagine the uncertainty of this young family as they uh, inevitably heard of the tragic events that took place in Bethlehem, uh, the reality that violence awaited them if they were to return, uh, and the disorientation of trying to make a living in this new land far away from everything that they've ever known. It's important to know that power and corruption and deception and genocide and refugees and exile and uncertainty and fear are intrinsically part of the Christmas story. So why does God uh, do it this way? Well, it's because there are lessons that need to be learned from this exile of Jesus. So let's uh, look at next what we can learn uh, from this exile, the lesson in exile. Uh, why did the Magi come looking for Jesus? Uh, why did King Herod freak out and go on a murderous rampage? Uh, why did Jesus become a refugee? Well, all this happened because Jesus was declared a king. Jesus as king is one of the most jarring and disorienting titles given to him. The claim that Jesus is king, king in exile, confronts nearly all erroneous assumptions about who he is. Because on the one hand, lest we ever assume that Jesus is only meek or poor or marginal, we must remember that he is a king. And he's a king in scripture that is described as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. However, on the other hand, lest we assume him to be like any other king, too solely about power, uh, he upends that assumption in his birth and his life and in his death. But why is it that Jesus as king is so disruptive to us? If a person claims to be king over your life, think about this. How might you react? You know, I think it's safe to say that you will not have a passive reaction to that claim, right? I mean, there's no way to feel agnostic about a person claiming to have sovereignty over your life. You know, as a parent, uh, I have found this to be true with my children. Uh, when they were babies, uh, they really had no concept uh, of of me as an authority in their life. You know, for a baby, if we are honest, uh, they kind of own you as a parent. Uh, when they want something, they get it. When they are upset, uh, they let you know. They aren't patient, they aren't gracious, and they don't really have to obey you because, of course, they don't even recognize you as an authority yet. But then there comes a time when they start to recognize that you do have control over their life. Uh, there comes a time 
when you make this turn where you tell them to do something and then you expect them to actually do it. It is that time when you make yourself known as an authority. As a parent, you make yourself known as an authority in their life. Uh, and for many kids, um, one of my two in particular struggled with this. My youngest struggled with this the most. Uh, there really is this point where you hit the terrible twos, the terrible threes. Uh, there really, at this time, becomes this rejection of being controlled. Uh, they don't like it, and they respond accordingly. It is this non-passive response to realizing that I have authority over their life and that rejection is actually a pretty natural reaction, even for adults. I mean, this is absolutely the case uh, with Jesus. When you understand that Jesus is king over your life, there cannot be a passive response if you truly understand what is being asserted. And if there is a passive response, then you just don't know what he is saying or what is being claimed about him. Uh, that's why uh, John Stott, a uh, famous theologian, uh, once said this, and this is uh, in your reflection quotes in your bulletin, uh, but he said this, he said, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted him or, and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. When you realize who Jesus is and what he claimed to be, you will either hate him, fear him, or be smitten by him. There cannot be any other reaction. And within our, our culture, we have largely been inoculated to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus by distracting ourselves with the other claims of the Christian faith. Uh, what I mean by that is you know, Jesus embodies love and compassion and mercy and grace that is right and that is true. Jesus uh, is a teacher who had wise insights uh, that is right and that is true. Uh, Jesus is a moral man who gives us an example of how we too can be moral. moral uh, that is right and that is true. But you don't have to be a Christian to believe most of that stuff. And even Jesus as Savior is really not all that controversial. You know, for some, they don't get that defensive or offended at the idea of Jesus wanting to take us from this messed up world uh, to this place called heaven. But when Jesus as king is claimed, that means that he is more than a teacher or an example to emulate. Jesus as king means your life is not your own. It means that he has complete authority over you, your life, and your destiny. It means wherever power and inf whatever power and influence and control you have, it is subject to him and nothing you possess is ultimately yours. And in our story here in Matthew 2 alone, we see two very different reactions to the truth, don't we? I mean, from Herod, we see a violent reaction against it. He hates Jesus and wants to kill him as a result of this claim that Jesus is king. Of course, the alternative response is from the Magi, who when they come in contact with Jesus, they lay down before him their treasures and they worship him. 
You know, in the words of Stott, they are smitten by him. And to be a Christian is to hear that your life is not your own and for your response to be that of joy and complete willingness to surrender all aspects of life. And in some sense, to not be a Christian is to hear Jesus having authority over your life and then rejecting that authority. But also, lest we assume, unless we think that this kingship and the necessity of laying down our lives to him uh, were not the words of Jesus, uh, we do need to consider just the words of Jesus and the things that Jesus had to say, uh, the depth of what it means for him to be king. Uh, for it was Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would uh, save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, to be my disciple, Jesus says, is to deny and to lose the life you think you wanted and to give that life to me. It was Jesus who said, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, your love and loyalty to me should be so passionately committed that all others pale in comparison to the love that you have for me. In Philippians 2 and in Romans 14, Jesus is the one who sits on the throne as judge over all, and it declares that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord's. In other words, no matter if one is willing to acknowledge Christ as king or not, one day, even the most ardent rejecter of Jesus' kingship will bow their knee to him as king. I mean, do you see why you cannot have a passive reaction to Jesus as king? When you realize what that actually means, we will either reject it and in some sense want him dead or removed from our consciousness, or we'll be terrified of him and just try to run away from him, or there will be a willing and joyful bowing down in worship to him as a result of this claim. So my question to you then is, where do you land? What is your reaction to Jesus as king? How do you react to the words of Jesus concerning what it means to follow him? I mean, are you currently rejecting him as king and reject his authority to determine the substance and trajectory of your life? Or do you recognize his, him as king, but you're so terrified of him uh, that you run away from him, distracting yourself with anything to keep from acknowledging that fear of him? Or do you hear all of this and like the Magi, joyfully lay down all your treasures and worship him? But the question, of course, then, is how do we even get our place, ourselves to a place where we can submit joyfully to his kingship? That's really only achieved by seeing the hope in the exile. Uh, a whole life uh, joyously submitted to the king is completely dependent on who that king is. I mean, what kind of king is worthy of such kind, that kind of submission? What kind of king is worthy of my life's trajectory? How can I submit myself to that kind of king?
I mean, will that king take advantage of me or treat me unjustly or um, always take but never give to me? I mean, those are good and right questions. And the answer to those questions in relation to Jesus as king is found in our passage. We get a glimpse uh, and a bit of a clue of what kind of king Jesus is. And I want to try to provide you the hope that he is a king that we can submit to. Uh, Look at verse 15. There's an interesting statement that's made there. It says that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Uh, The prophet being referred to there is Hosea. This statement comes from Hosea 11. Uh, Matthew is essentially using that statement from Hosea and he's applying it to Jesus. Now, if you are a super Christian uh, who goes home and dissects and confirms everything that I say every week, uh, or if you're a footnote reader and researcher, uh, you'll note something interesting about Hosea 11, about this passage. Uh, Specifically, Hosea does not make that statement as a prophecy. Hosea is not talking about Jesus in Hosea 11. So the question is, why does Matthew then apply that statement to Jesus? Well, to understand that, we need to do a couple things. First, we need to understand the context of Hosea. The whole narrative of Hosea is essentially that Hosea marries a prostitute. He calls her out of that lifestyle. He loves her. He cares for her and promises to always provide for her. But in time, she goes off to prostitute herself again, rejecting his love Uh, But instead of rejecting her, he pursues her and seeks to win her back. Her adultery, however, and her prostitution had led her uh, to become, um, she was now in bondage and in slavery as a result. So Hosea goes and he pays for his wife to redeem her out of her bondage, brings her home and restores her. Now, this entire narrative was designed to be a parallel between God's relationship, uh, with God's relationship in Israel. Similarly, God had promised to care for and love Israel. But Israel prostitutes themselves and seeks out other gods, other lovers, so to speak. But in love, God pursues them. Now, the second thing to note is specifically the context of Hosea 11, Uh, If you read that passage, Hosea is speaking about Israel as a whole. God uh, uses the term son to describe the entire nation of Israel, a nation in bondage in Egypt. In other words, Hosea's words are not um, a prediction of the coming Messiah, but rather they are a reminder of the Exodus when they were redeemed out of Egypt. And here's the point. Matthew wants us to think about God's story with Israel. He wants his reader to remember God's faithfulness, this relentless pursuit of even those who had rejected him. He wants us to remember Egypt, the fact that he rescues and restores and redeems and blesses his people. He wants us to remember the price he was willing to pay in order to ensure that his people were redeemed and brought back into his love. So then what is the hope? What is our hope? How do we joyfully submit to the kingship of Jesus? We do so by remembering and seeing the kind of king we have, the kind of king that is described in Hosea's words, 
I think too often we resist the kingship of Jesus because we do not trust kings. Because too often worldly kings use their power for self-gain. They are corrupt. They are violent and uncaring. They do not want what is best for their subjects. And even if they do, they are fallible and are not capable of being all that we need. But that is not Jesus. Jesus is not a king who abuses power. But Philippians tells us that he had equality with God, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant, humbled himself. Jesus is not a fallible king who lacks the will to do that which is truly righteous. Rather, he is a perfectly righteous king who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. Jesus is not a king who cares nothing about our suffering, but enters into our pain, understanding the brokenness of a world marred by the effects of sin. Jesus is not a king who is hate-filled toward or indifferent to those who reject him, but willingly pursues those who reject him. And on the cross, like Hosea, he pays the price to redeem and to restore those who rejected him, those trapped in bondage like those in Egypt. And he does so even before we trusted him. Romans 5 tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Jesus is not a king who is powerless to be our victorious king, but rather he is the king who went to the grave but rose victorious. He is the one who has conquered sin and death. And so I wonder, can you trust a king like that? Can you willingly bow to that kingship? Can you willingly give your life to a king who identifies with your suffering, a king who uses his power not for his good, but for your good, a king who refuses to let you go, but is pursuing you right now, a king who sees you in bondage and pays the price to redeem you out of that bondage, a king whose kindness and love accomplished these things for you. Can you trust that kind of king? Emmanuel, God with us, is king, a king who went into exile and through that exile makes us his own. This is the hope in exile. This is the reason for the Christmas season. May it give you renewed life in your celebration. Happy Advent.